0: Let's open our Bibles tonight to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter number 5. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Mark chapter 5, verse number 1. The Bible says, And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much, that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them." And forthwith Jesus gave them leave and the unclean spirits went out and it entered into the swine and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. They that fed the swine fled and told it in the city, and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that was done. When they come to, and they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him, pray Jesus to depart out of their coast. When he was come into the ship, He that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Thank you for a good day, a good message this morning that stirred our hearts. Thank you for good food and fellowship with our church family. Help us now as we draw our attention again to the Word of God to have our hearts set and fixed upon you, desiring you above all else and your will to be carried out in our lives. And I know Lord that as we set our hearts upon thee that you will work in a magnificent way in us. So Lord, we thank you in advance for what we know you'll do. Please bless this time and use it for your glory and honor. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I had an interesting conversation with someone uh, yesterday. Uh, we were talking about homecoming and they asked the question. They said, Preacher, what is homecoming? They were from a part of the country that didn't, didn't do homecoming. And, uh, you know, we, we were talking about what homecoming is. My wife, I think, put it best of, of anybody. She said, really, homecoming is like family reunion for your church. And that's the design and and ambition behind a homecoming is an opportunity for those that maybe God has moved on to come back and visit with and for us to be able to spend time and enjoy time together. But it got me thinking about what we're doing in, in, in a homecoming day and what we're endeavoring to do and then thinking about the idea of coming home or going home. And my mind was immediately brought to this passage in Mark chapter number 5. When the Lord says something to this man that caught my attention, He says in verse 19, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. Here's what the Lord told this man. You have a ministry at home. Home's a precious thing, man. That word home conjures up ideas and, and memories for most people uh, that are warm, that are, that are comforting, that are that are reassuring. And I think sometimes in feeling like, at least I hope this is true for you, in feeling like your home is a place of refuge, I think that sometimes it is easy to dismiss that it is also a place of ministry. We talk often about this with mothers in the home in particular, and I think it is evident, clearly so, on the pages of Scripture and on the examples in people's lives, what a ministry that mothers have within the home. But I don't just mean within the confines of the people that live within your house. But I mean that God has given you and I a sphere of influence over people who we've been blessed to have a relationship with and a connection with that is deeper than just the passing superficial interactions that we have with the world around us. And God tells this man in Mark chapter 5, the man wants to go with Jesus. That's what his heart is. And I'd say this, man, if you profess to be born again and you don't have a desire for fellowship with Him, something's wrong in your life. Uh, This man, the moment he gets born again, he wants to be with Jesus. And he wants to travel with Him. He wants to be a disciple. He wants to go with Him. But the Lord says, no, I'm sorry. There is too much work for you to do at home. And so he calls this man into the mission field of his own home and sends him back to these people he has known and says, you need to carry the good news of what's happened to you to those that are closest to you. I'd say one of the great tragedies and I, I hope that we strike a balance at Wallridge. I, it's my heart to do so. But one of the things that I think can sometimes be lacking in evangelistic endeavors is oftentimes it neglects the home. And I don't just simply mean the spiritual strength of the home, the nourishment of the home, but I mean, hey, I don't know about you, but I got family that needs Christ. I got loved ones that need Christ. I got people that I see on a regular basis that need Christ. I mean, people that I know intimately that need the Lord to save them and transform their life. And sometimes it is so easy to be so externally focused that we miss the ministry that's at home in our lives day by day. Well, this is the ministry that this man is called to. I also thought about this passage, and I don't want to say this is incorrect. It's always correct for Christ to be preeminent in all things. But when you consider this story as a story about this man as opposed to a story about the Lord, then you'll find that there are basically three portions to this man's story and his interactions with the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice them with me tonight. The first part of this man's story is his miracle. When we meet this man, we find him in a dreadful condition. Uh, He is a broken individual. He is a man whose life Satan has taken and twisted and shattered and destroyed in a way that left him just a shell of a human being. Listen to what the Bible says about this man. In verse number 2, here's what we're told. Uh, It says, when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Let me say, number one, tonight he was demon-possessed. In other words, he was under the direct jurisdiction and authority of the devil in his life. He was not somebody that was operating in the free-wheeling and free-living uh, utopian dream of the 60s hippies where you could do anything you want. Let me tell you something. They weren't living in freedom either. Sin doesn't provide freedom in your life. Sin only provides bondage. One of the great lies the devil wants to tell you is that freedom means living in sin. No, freedom means freedom from sin, not freedom in sin. And this man was under the bond and under the the chains of the devil in his life. He did not have autonomy. He did not have liberty. He did not have freedom. And by the way, that's evidenced by the fact that when just a moment of lucidity falls upon him, when when the Lord pulls the devils of hell off of him just long enough to breathe, what does he do? He runs and falls at the feet of Jesus. tells me this, he knew he was messed up. And he didn't want to be messed up. But he didn't know how to quit being messed up. (laughs) Isn't that the plight of every lost sinner in this world? Most of them. Uh, I mean, listen, you you get past uh, 25 and life ain't fun anymore. Don't matter if you're lost or saved. Somebody say amen. It's just all downhill, you know. (laughs) And Undoubtedly, this man, he didn't want to be in this broken condition, but he didn't know how to get. And how often do you see people whose lives are in pieces and they want help? They want things changed. They don't know where to look for help. One of the lies the devil has told you is that nobody's interested in the gospel. Truth of the matter is, there are a lot of folks that's looking for hope, looking for help, looking for light, looking for truth. And you and I are the ones that carry it. This man, he was demon possessed. Notice not only that, he was degenerate. The Bible tells us later on in Mark's account that he was sitting clothed at the feet of Jesus. And, you know, when you don't read all of the gospel accounts, that may strike you as an odd thing to say. But Luke tells us why this was significant. Because in Luke's account, it says that when he went forth to a land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time. And the Bible says he wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. In other words, uh, he was not just demon-possessed, he was degenerate in his behavior. He walked around naked. He had no shame. He had no sense of modesty. He had lost the capacity to blush. He didn't even know that it was appropriate that he cover himself. And he's living in a way free, what we would say, from the strictures of society. But really all it was, was he was living under the bondage of the devil's morale system. I'll tell you this, the world has morals, but they got them straight out of hell. (laughs) They value certain things, they just value the wrong things. And this man was living under that value system. He was a degenerate individual. In other words, the jurisdiction and authority of Satan in his life, the influence of the devil in his life, had brought about a rotten way and manner of living. You know, that's really what it boils down to. You really want to know the truth behind things? Look and see whether there's any true holiness in it. There's a lot of folks, hey, there's a crowd calls themselves holiness, but they ain't very holy. There's a crowd, there's crowds talk all kinds about about deliverance, about being set free, about breaking through, about awakening, about cutting out, cutting in, and this and that and the other. Where's the holiness in all of it? Where's the righteousness in all of it? Where's the Christ-likeness in all of it? Here's the thing, what he had was sensational, but it was also sensual. He's a man who's degenerate in his behavior. There's no righteousness. There's no holiness in the way that they're living. And I promise you this, the devil gets a hold of somebody. He's going to bring rotten fruit to bear in their life. By the way, that ought, to, that ought to jar you and me to look at the way we're living and ask ourselves, do I look more like I ought to belong to the devil or like I ought to belong to Christ? And he was somebody who was degenerate in the way that he was living. And the devil also, the atheist would say, well, you know, I can be good without God. Then why aren't any of them? It always produces wickedness and unrighteousness. That's because true holiness only comes from the Holy Spirit in a person's life and the presence of Christ in their life and the authority of Christ in their life. You are not righteous, He is righteous. And as He lives through you, He produces the fruit of righteousness. This man, he was demon-possessed. He was degenerate. Notice not only this, he was deranged. Verse 3 says, Who had His dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind Him. No, not with chains. Because that He had been often bound with fetters and chains. And the chains had been plucked asunder by Him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame Him. We would call this man today a lunatic. We would say that this man's mind was shattered. And certainly, even in that day, they would have perceived him in that way. They had tried to bind him. And by the way, being out of control is not a symbol of of uh, macho and of authority and of uh, of control. Being out of control is a sign of a deranged mind. When people say, well, you know, nobody's going to tell me. Well, God ought to be able to tell you. If not even God can tell you, then that's deranged. <laughs> And this man was deranged in the way that No one could control him. I like how the Bible says it. No man could tame him. You know, that's what the Lord did when He saved you and me. He tamed us. When you tame an animal, you're not holding it down by restraint. You're changing its value system and causing it to understand that obedience produces blessing and that they are far better off having an amicable relationship based out of love than one based out of brute force, restraint, and violence. You know, that's what God did when He saved you and I. He tamed us. You don't have to put chains on us. We're His now. He's our master. We're His now. He tamed us. This man, he was demon-possessed. He was degenerate. He was deranged. And he was destructive. Verse 5 says, Always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. Let me tell you something. The devil hates mankind. He'd love to see every one of us dead. But he'd love to take us and twist us and ruin us first so that he can scoff in the face of God. And that's what the devil was doing in this man's life. The devil had no love, had no affection, had no sense of of responsibility of this man. He had no sense of, of paternal nourishment towards this man. He just saw him as a piece of meat that he could cut up and chew up and spit out the other side. You know, that's the condition of every lost person. You say, now preacher, I don't see lost people walking around like this man. Well, some of them are, but even those that are not, the overarching truths prevailing in this man's life were present and are present in the lives of those that are lost likewise. I see his dreadful condition, but then I'm reminded of his dramatic transformation. Verse 15 sums it up. Something happened in this man's life. Well, what happened in this man? Well, he met Jesus. That's what happened in this man's life. And like the preacher said this morning, it changed everything. Verse 15 says this. They come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion setting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. This is an entirely different individual as to who they see in the very opening verses of this passage. He's not just calmed down, he's changed. He's not just somebody that's been settled down. He's somebody that's been saved. He's been dramatically transformed by the presence and power of the Lord. Notice the things that God did in His life. Man, it's what God did in all of our lives. Notice, number one, He was cleansed. I like the way the Bible says it, was possessed with the devil. You know how Paul says it in the book of 1 Corinthians? He says, and such were some of you. But now you're washed. Now you're clean. Now you're sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hey, that's who we used to be. But thank God it ain't who we are now. He changed us. He transformed us. I was talking to somebody a while back. We were talking about the topic of, of possession. And, you know, there's a lot going on right now in, in in Christianity. A lot of conversations about it. A lot of talks about it. A lot of movements about it. And uh, they were just asking some some questions about demon possession. Where are all these demons today? What happened to them? Are demons still active? I believe demons are still active in this world. I think there's no question about that. I, I think that that very often in places where devils can gain more influence by exerting themselves and preying upon people's superstition in a lot of third world places where that's very common. I think they operate in that way. But I still think demonic possession exists in this state. I I think very often he doesn't show up snarling and baring his teeth at people, uh, but rather with an oily hair and a smooth smile and a winning uh, grin. That's how the devil chooses to deceive people. But the next question I was asked is, well, what happens? I mean, is God still delivering people from those devils? And certainly He is, but He ain't doing it through the TV preacher. He isn't doing it it through the radio preacher. You say, well, how's he doing it? Well, the same way he always did it. It was never the apostles that would cast the devils out. It was always God that did it. And he was just using during that time of transition in the book of Acts human agency. But when we look in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that it was him that cast them out then. Guess what? It's him that casts them out now. How did he do it then? He did it by the power of his spirit. How does he do it now? By the power of his spirit. When a person believes on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God takes up residence in their life and the devils flee from them. Why? Because they can't dwell in that same vessel. He takes over. He takes control. Uh, You say, well, preacher, what does that mean? It means this. Yeah, sure, there's devil-possessed people walking around. You say, preacher, what do they need? Do they need to be healed? Do they need to be smacked? Do they need to be broke through and delivered and hit with a coat and uh, sprinkled? No, I'll tell you what they need. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ to believe upon it, be born again, and be saved by the grace of God. That's what transforms people's lives. And that's what transformed his life. When Christ showed up, the devil fleed from him. I see that he was cleansed. Number two, I see he was calm. The Bible says this, he was sitting. Before, there was a frenetic energy about him. He couldn't help it. I mean, he literally had uh, half a hell rolling around in his soul. and he could, But now there's a calm. There's a peace in him. Now what's he doing? He's sitting. You know what that denotes? Submission. Before, no man could tame him, but now he's seated at the feet of Jesus. Isn't it amazing what the gospel does in a man's life? Takes those people that say, nobody can tell me what to do, and turns them into, Lord, please tell me what to do. Those people that used to say, nobody's going to run me, to now saying, Master, what do you want out of my life? Man, what a transformation. I see that he was cleansed. I see he was calm. Man, your Bible says it. He was sitting and he was clothed. That's all right, man. I knew coming into the night we weren't going to burn the barn down. But that's all right. I don't buy... He was clothed. What happened? When the Holy Spirit took up residence in his life, now he has the propensity to blush again. I wonder sometimes, man. I understand why lost folks ain't ashamed at things, but wouldn't you think the Spirit of God would be ashamed at some things? Wouldn't He be chagrined at some things? Wouldn't He blush at some things? And what happened in this man's life when he got uh, saved, when he believed on the Lord, is first thing he went. I don't know where they're at. He found some somewhere. didn't matter to him whether they're fashionable. Uh, He probably pulled them off some old dead body. I don't know. (laughs) But now he's sitting and he's clothed. He's cleansed. He's calm. He's clothed. But then notice this. He's coherent. The Bible says he's in his right mind. In his right mind. You know why that is? When a person's lost, they're in the wrong mind. That's why the world's so messed up. The world is in its wrong mind today. It's not mind operating the way God intended for it to operate. It's instead they're in their wrong mind. You know what Jesus will do? He'll make you in your right mind. That's why a lost person doesn't understand the way saved people behave. They're in their wrong mind. When you got born again, you got in your right mind. And now all of a sudden, what's happened? It's changed his thinking, his perspective, his worldview. Everything's different from what it used to be. Now he's cleansed, he's calm, he's clothed, and he's coherent. What a glorious miracle. And by the way, it was no less of a miracle when God saved you and saved me. I see his miracle. But there's a second part to this man's story, and that is his mission verse number 19, we already said, he has told the Lord, I want to go with you. I want to travel with you. I want to be close with you. The Lord says, no, there's a work for you to do. And where is that work? Notice how he says this. He says, go home to thy friends. I think sometimes, you know, we read the whole story. We have the whole picture to some degree. And sometimes the minutia of the text of Scripture escapes us. But can I just notice something to you? He says, go home to thy friends. Can I tell you exactly what went through that man's mind when he heard that? What friends? What friends? Are you talking about the people that locked me in chains? you talking about the people that instead of helping me, they hurt me? you talking about the people that abandoned me? That's who you're talking about, Lord. He says, yes, son, go home to thy friends. Here's what his mission was, number one. It was to return with forgiveness in his heart. He had to go, and I'll just go ahead and say it. He had to go, number one, to those that had abandoned him. I mean, I don't know. We're not told this man has a wife or children. Maybe he did, maybe he did not. Presumably, he has parents. Presumably, he has extended family. People that you would have thought, and by the way, like I understand the the helpless feeling of looking at someone that is just deteriorating, but I mean, it had spread all over Israel that this man Jesus was healing people, casting out devils, changing lives. Wouldn't you have thought they would have said, Son, we've got to get you to Jesus. I said, Preacher, that's not fair. Other other parents did. Other family did. Over and over in the gospel, what do we find? We find daddies and mamas bringing their kids and getting them under the feet of Jesus and saying, Lord, would you heal them? Would you change them? Would you fix them? Would you save them? All throughout, But not this man's family. They said, let's just put him out in the graveyard. Let's get him out of sight and out of mind. Let's just take all his mess and all his problem and try to put it out to pasture and not have to deal with it anymore. They abandoned him. Now the Lord says, those are the people you need to go to. Not only those that had abandoned him, but number two, those that had abused him. Bible says, and I don't know, you know, the the it seems apparent from Scripture that evil spirits had the capacity to give supernatural strength. But it wouldn't have made his body invincible. You imagine when they put those chains on him and he broke them. Even though he may have had the strength to break them. It doesn't mean his body stood up to it. When they bound him with fetters. When they basically shoved him off into the wilderness to live and survive on his own. There's no telling the hurt and the pain and the misery that he endured through that process. Let's say it this way. Not only those that abandoned him, but those that had abused him. He had to go back to those that had hurt him. Those that didn't deserve his testimony, oh, now, didn't deserve his testimony, didn't deserve his witness, didn't deserve his time. The Lord says, go home to thy friends, son. Go to the people that have betrayed you. Go to the people that have hurt you. Go to the people that don't deserve a second chance from you. Because, son, you sure enough didn't deserve a second chance. But I gave you one. His mission is to go back, and that had to be hard. I mean, he had to look some of those people in the face that no doubt were scared of him. They had known him in his old life, were scared of him. But he was tasked, those that had hurt him, but who better than this man? I'll tell you something you don't want to hear. And this is completely disconsolate with the entire uh, the entire economy of victimhood that we live in today but sometimes the person that has hurt you the most is the person that you are most situated to reach. They know you have to be saying it in love. They know you have to be doing it by the grace of God because you sure wouldn't do it because you just like them. Imagine what a buzz ran through that town when this man comes walking in. And people are terrified and they're afraid. And he looks at him and says, Don't be afraid. I want to tell you what happened to me. I want to tell you about this man that I met. But son, we we hurt you. We, we we abandoned you. We thought there was no hope. We left you to die in the will. That's all behind us now. All that matters is what this man did for me and what he can do for you. He had to go home. He had to return with forgiveness in his heart. Notice number two. He had to return with faith in his heart. Think about the context of what else is going on in this passage? Uh, whenever the Lord casts these devils out of this man and, and sends them into the swine, me and the Lord, we're going we're to have talk about that. Well, that's, that's, that's a waste of a lot of good bacon. I trust His providence. He has a plan in it, and I understand that. He, they're His pigs. He made the pigs, but, I mean, surely there could have been some skunks He could have sent them into or something. But He sends them into this this herd of swine, and they go, and the Bible says they run headlong down into the cliff. Well, there's people there whose job it is to watch the pigs, and they see this happen, and they get scared. I mean, it it, it messes with them, and so they run back to the village, and they tell everybody, they said, you'll never believe this, Jesus came, and he, he cast the devil out of that lunatic that lives out in the wilderness, and then he killed all our pigs, and I don't understand what's going on, and come see! And they go back, and then they do inventory of all of the... All of the money they had lost in it. And they look at it and the Bible says this, that they prayed him, Jesus, to depart out of their coast. They said, we don't want that. No, thank you. We'd rather have our hogs than we would have you. And they prayed him to depart out of their coast. Now Jesus looks at this man and says, I want you to go back. I want you to go to those that have just prayed me to depart. And I want you to tell them what I did for you. Think about this. He had to go to those that remembered his story. It's hard to witness people you know really well. You know why? They know everything you've ever done wrong. Now listen, that's only a problem if we're not willing to magnify the grace of God. If we're willing to magnify the grace of God in our life, then that should be no barrier. Because here's what they're going to do. They're going to say to you, Oh yeah, I know you. I remember when we used to drink together. And you say, yeah. But then God, by His grace, saved me. I'm not who I used to be. Oh, I remember we used to hang out. We used to shoot dope together. Yeah, that's true. But I don't do that anymore. God saved me and He changed my life. And I'm a new person now. Oh, yeah, I remember we used to go out and we used to uh, look for women or we used to go out on town used to look for people. Yeah, I know that, but God saved me. And that's not the life that I'm living anymore because of the grace of God. You see, none of that's a barrier. Just as this man, if they had said, I remember you, you were a lunatic. You tried to hurt people. We tried to bind you and couldn't. And he could say, yes, that was me. But as you can obviously see, by the grace of God, that's not me anymore. You see, it's one of the deceptive tools of the devil to intimidate you away from witnessing to those that know you best through your failures. Now, somebody is going to be sitting there thinking this right here. Preacher, that's all good for everything that I did before I got born again. But let's be honest, there's things I've done after I got born again. And those people want to throw those things in my face likewise. Preacher, how do I handle that? You handle them the same way. You know, times that I have strayed from the Lord have been times that I have done things I'm ashamed of. But hey, by His grace, He forgave me. He he, he cleansed me. He restored me. And I'm not who I used to be, but I'm also not who I temporarily was. By the grace of God, there's forgiveness no matter what your situation. He had to go to those who remembered his story. But notice number two, he had to go to those who had rejected his Savior. They had already made their decision. It's funny how we have this perspective. We have this very consumer mentality about the way that we do things in life and You just took that from me. That is my handkerchief. Give that to me. What's the matter with you? What place is this? Honey, go lock the car doors. Little street children just come up and steal things from you while you're trying to preach. My goodness. We sometimes think to ourselves, well, I have witnessed to them and they have told me they are not interested. As though that is reason enough to let somebody die and go to hell. I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say. Adorning the gospel is not pestering people. It's not being obnoxious. It's not causing and forcing tension in a relationship to try to prove a point. That's not what adorning the gospel is. By the same token, aren't you glad the Holy Ghost didn't leave you alone the first time you said no? He had to go to those that had already said, no. Nope. We know what Jesus is. We know who He is. We know what He can do. Not interested. The Lord says, go back to those people and tell them, you saw the swine, but now see the sinner that got saved by the grace of God. You saw that big uh, pile of pig carcasses. You saw how the grace of God can destroy, but now see how it can make anew and create a life where once there was only destruction and despair. He had to go to those that had already rejected Him. Those that had already said no to Jesus. And I'll just be honest with you, I, I I know sometimes preachers will say, you know, it's not soul winning, it's soul warning, and all we're trying to do is just just place it out there. But there's a, there's this perspective as though the goal of Christianity is simply to canvas the entire world with a superficial exposure to the gospel. But the reality is in your personal relationships with people around you, very often people are going to turn Jesus away. But guess what? God's still giving you a relationship with Him. Why is it when we go through a health scare and God leaves us here, we'll say, well now the Lord must have a purpose in that but when we go through a relationship scare with somebody through sharing the gospel with them and God retains the presence of that relationship afterwards, why do we not likewise say, well, I guess God salvaged that relationship for a reason. I guess he's not done with me witnessing to them. I guess he's not give up on them because he's still got me as present in their life. I see his mission but then notice his message and I'll be done tonight. I won't be like that preacher this morning and say he's going to close 600 times. You know me. I don't do that. <laughs> Finally, my brethren. Verse 19. He says this. We see not only his miracle and his mission, but notice his message. He says, tell him. Well, what do I tell him, Lord? Tell him how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. I All the time hear people say, preacher, I wouldn't know how to witness to someone. You do. You do. And I understand what you mean by that. There's not a one of us that doesn't wish they were more versed in Scripture, more comfortable, could, could immediately bring to our memory and recall the, the verses that we want to quote. And that's why we have things like gospel tracts and, and literature that help show people and galvanize in their mind those things. But at the end of the day, the sharing of the gospel is in a similar sense what this man did. I'm deeply aware of the dispensational distinctions between this moment in time and the dispensation of grace we're living in. I understand the distinction between what's happened in this man's life and what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. But, you know, if you just squint for a moment, you'll see there's a similarity here. What are you doing when you witness to people? Well, listen, there's two things he was to tell them. Number one, of his wonderful salvation. He was to tell them about the magnitude of his salvation. I like how the Bible says this, tell them how great things... You know, one of the things we miss in witnessing to people is tell them how great salvation is. We just don't talk about it much. We tell them how awful hell is. And I'm not opposed to that. I mean, I, I said this morning, I got saved because I was scared of going to hell. I've heard preachers say, you don't get saved for that reason. Don't tell me that. That's why I got saved. I said, I'm not going to hell. And I got born again when I believed on the Lord. So I'm not against that. But man, you know, it'd be nice if sometimes we told them how good He is. How great things. He didn't just barely save me. Hey, He completely saved me. He didn't put me on a layaway plan. He paid the whole tab. And He saved me eternally. And He did great things. Hey, it was a great thing when He saved yourself. soul. wasn't a small thing. It was a great thing. He said, tell them about the magnitude. Tell them how great. He he didn't just come along and tell you to straighten up and fly right and get better and turn over a new leaf. He came and He freed me when no one could free me. He cleansed me when no one could cleanse me. He delivered me when no one could deliver me. Tell them how great things. When God saved you, He saved you eternally and wondrously. Tell them how great things that he hath done for thee. Not only that, tell him not only about the magnitude of his salvation, but tell him about the means of his salvation. He says this, tell him how great things the Lord hath done for thee. In other words, tell him how it happened. This is how it happened. He did it for me. So preacher, how'd you get born again? He did it. Preacher, how'd you get saved? He did it. He saved me. I didn't do these things in a transaction with him. He did these things for me. He did for me, as the preacher said this morning, what I could not do for myself. And the Lord says, be sure when you tell them about what's happened to you, you tell them that the Lord did it for you. You didn't have to help. You didn't have to pledge and promise and cajole and turn over new leaves and swear to do better. You couldn't do better. You finally realized you couldn't do better. And when you finally realized you couldn't do better, then I was able to do for you what you could not do for yourself. When I got born again, I got born again by the grace of God. It worries me these people think you can get in by works. It worries me, man. I mean, you say, preacher, is it possible for someone to be saved by the grace of God and then slide and fall into that mentality? I don't know, just to be honest with you. I have serious concerns about it because it tells me that their whole their whole perspective on salvation is predicated on the notion that it could be earned by their righteousness in the first place. When I got saved, even as a ten year old boy, here's what I knew. I didn't know how to say it. I probably would have said it this way I'm in a mess. And and, and what I mean by that is I am in a situation I cannot rectify. I cannot change this. I can't fix it. God has to do this for me. Because I cannot do it for myself. Hey, when I saved, you say, preacher, how would you get in? I got in by grace. I like the songwriter said, I made it by grace. The only way I could get in was by grace. And here's what we need to tell people. Hey, don't just tell them what He did. Tell them how He did it. How did He do it? He did it by dying in your place on Calvary's tree. Paying the price that you could not pay. And then applying that salvation to you. And all you had to do was come to him and be willing for him to do it. He says, tell him about his wonderful salvation. But not only that, he wanted him to tell him about his merciful compassion. Tell him how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on me. Now that's interesting. It's stated almost like two separate facts. It's stated almost as though, it's saying the Lord did a great and wondrous thing when he saved me, but he didn't stop just by saving me, He loved me and he continues to love me in my life day by day. He did this and he did this. It wasn't just that He loved me but was helpless to save me. It wasn't just that He saved me out of an act of convenience but really cared nothing for me. It's that He loved me enough. God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And oh, how great a love that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost after we've received Christ. He didn't just sort of love me. He completely loved me. And that love then extends on and perpetuates on in my life from now through eternity. now we could say it this way. He wants them to, to, to tell him how that love was applied to him. How that he personally knew the love of God. Because God, when no one else loved him, you say, how do you know that, preacher? They loved him. They wouldn't have thrown him out in the tombs. They wouldn't have laid in bed at night and listened to him scream and cry and cut himself. If they really loved him, at worst they would have took him out and killed him. That's all right. I'm going to say that again. I want you to hear what I'm saying. If they felt helpless and they couldn't, then at the very least they would have put him out of his misery. They didn't even care enough about him to do that. They just laid there in bed and listened to him cry and scream. They cared nothing about him. And now here comes Jesus and Jesus cares about him. Nobody else loves him, but Jesus loves him. I sometimes think to myself, Lord, I don't know why you love me. The people that know me the best, I I don't understand why they love me. And he knows me better than anyone knows me. He knows me better than I know me. And yet still he loves me. Go tell him how that love was applied to him. But also not just that. I I think there's something that's implicit here. Why would he tell him that? It's all good and well for him to come up. and, You know the Lord loves me. Okay, great. What does that do for me? I think... There was an implication here. Don't, son, just tell them that I love you. Tell them I love them too. They won't listen to me. They've prayed me to depart out of their coasts. But you, son, you're a citizen here. They can't make you leave. I love that. I love to be places I can't be made to leave. In fact, I generally live life that way. That's not a threat. I'm just telling you, I ain't going to go easy. They can't make you go. So you know what you do? Go tell them that I love them. But Lord, they don't want you. I know that. You didn't want me either. Until you got a moment to see the grace and love that I have for you. So go tell them that I love them. One of the greatest things about being a soul winner is there is no bad person to witness to. And I have never once in my life had to tell anybody Jesus hates them. These grifters, you see them on the news, they call themselves Baptists, but these grifters that show up and, and protest at soldiers' funerals and stuff like that, uh, their message, they show up and they are they are just brimmingly excited to tell people how much Jesus hates them. And I, I've thought to myself before, and by the way, I mean, it's true God's angry with the wicked every day. It, it, it's likewise true that there's probably a lot of really corrupt things about our government, and things that are anti-God and anti-Christ. I don't dispute that. But it's just astounding to me that people that would claim to have partook in the grace of God would want their life song to be, God hates you. The whole purpose of the God, man, man doesn't need a gospel to know that God hates him. If if man has just an inkling, a modicum of logic and common sense, he already understands that he's the enemy of God and that God hates unrighteousness. The transformative and radical thing about the gospel is not the notion that God hates the wicked and is angry with the wicked, but it's that running parallel to that reality and truth. God has the capacity to hate the sin but love the sinner and that God loves those that are broken. That he desires to transform their life. That God can completely hate sin and completely love a sinner. It's always been astounding to me that these people would make this their their life song. Since I got born again, the the note that keeps ringing in my soul is not that God is angry with the wicked. I know he is and I'm not afraid of that truth. But it's that he loves sinners and that he's willing to save them and change their lives. I didn't plan this because I don't really plan anything, just to be frank. But I love them little girls singing, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible told me so. Because here was this man's message. Son, go home and tell them Jesus loves you. And that Jesus loves them too. And so I guess if I had a, if I had a thought, it'd be go home. Go home to those that are your friends. You say, preacher, you don't know what they've done to me. Probably not near as much as was done to this man. Go home to thy friends. Preacher, they ain't my friend. You remember when they said that to the Lord? The Lord told the uh, parable of the good Samaritan. He said, be this way to your neighbor. Uh, be good to your neighbors. Love thy neighbor. And they said, who is my neighbor? And he tells the parable of the good Samaritan. And then he says, who was this man a neighbor to? Preacher, I ain't got no friends. He that hath friends must show himself friendly. Preacher, I ain't got no friends. Who are you being a friend to? Go home to thy friends. Preacher, you don't know what they've done to me. No, but I know what God's done for you. And I know that what He's done for you, He can do for them. Say, Preacher, what we talk about, you go tell them how great things the Lord hath done for you. And that He'll do them for them. Say, but Preacher, I don't know if I love them. Well, just go tell them that God loves them. How He hath had compassion on thee. And how He has compassion... On them. There's a ministry to those that God has given closest in our life. Let's never neglect it. Let's bow together tonight. As a musician comes to play, I'd venture a guess. And it is a guess. I'm not a prophet. But I'd venture a guess that there was some of y'all, that there was a my, a name that, that marched in front of your mind and in front of your soul through that message. Somebody specific that's on your heart that you were thinking about, that God put them on your mind and on your heart. So preacher, what can I do? Well, the first thing you can do is come and ask for God, pray for God to give you a right spirit and attitude in witnessing to Him, to give you an open door, an opportunity. Preacher, they've hurt me. I don't doubt that. I'm not saying they haven't, but I'm saying God loves you and He loves them and you might be the very person that God can use the most. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.